Well, good morning. Let me welcome you to Mother's Day at Crossroads. This is one of those days that is really exciting for us that we kind of plan for uh, weeks and months in advance. It's one of those things that we got one of the days where we get to highlight uh, some special people in our lives. And again, it's a special day because this is one of those days where families will be getting together this afternoon. Maybe you'll do it at lunch. Maybe you'll do it this afternoon. You'll do it tonight. But it's just a special time. But you know, even though I say that, I'm totally aware that this probably with maybe one other holiday, is one of the most complex holidays. I mean, for a lot of people, this is a day that's filled with joy. Uh, it's a day that's filled with gratitude. But I, I realize also that there are people who, you know, when you come to Mother's Day, they, they were those people who wanted to become a mom, but it's never happened. And, and, and knowing that they wanted to be a mom and it hasn't happened this is one of those days that for those people can kind of feel really heavy. Uh, for some moms, you have a child, but the relationship is not what you want it to be. It's actually turned out to be painful. Uh, there's distance. And so you have Mother's Day, and it makes this day kind of feel awkward. Or, or maybe you chose not to be a mom. Uh, and if you chose not to be a mom, this is one of those days that our culture, our society can kind of make you feel with all the advertisements and all the talk. It can kind of make you feel like you're second class or maybe, you know, not as good as everybody else. Or, or maybe you're here, and, and I want you to hear me, maybe you terminated a pregnancy. And, and again, if that's something, if that's a decision that you made, then I want you to understand, I know there's all kinds of weight that comes with that decision that you made. Or maybe you've lost a mom. So if you've lost a mom, then today is kind of bittersweet. Or maybe you've lost a child. And, and, and you got up this morning, you're like, I don't even know if I want to go to church. So again, with all of those things being said, I just want you to hear my heart. This is home. And, and, and Jesus, when Jesus came, Jesus came to start a new family for everybody. And knowing that, it just means that we're glad you're here. Now, there are some of you, especially in this service, that are kind of optimistic, kind of excited about maybe starting a family in the, in, in the, in the future, launching a family. And again, I just want to warn you, I want, I want to encourage you, I want to do everything that I can to help you, but I want to tell you that being a parent and raising a family is not necessarily what I call a Hallmark card moment. Can I get an amen in the house? As a matter of fact, lots of research points to the fact that when you become a parent, it does not lead to higher levels of happiness in your life. <laughs> it's meaningful. It's wonderful, but it's not easy. And statistics show us that once you have ch children, marital satisfaction <laughs> actually goes down <laughs> when you start having children. Now listen to this. Uh, again, I kind of did a little research. Some research was done and asking parents about several different common household activities. About 20 of them, I think so. 
And those activities included everything from caring for children all the way to cleaning the house. And out of 20, I want you to understand that the parents who were surveyed, child care was not first on the list. I mean, think about it. These are people who are parents, and they were surveyed, asking them about household activities. Child care was not number one. It was not number two. Caring for their children rated number 16 out of 20, people, out of 20 things that people were asked, what do you like as a parent, as a, uh, as a mother or father of children, what do you like to do? It was number 16. It came behind meal prep, exercising, behind talking on the, ho- the phone, and actually house cleaning. I can remember there was a day when I looked at my wife, and I'm glad she was, she was in the first service. She's not in this one, so I can be a little more vocal. And I looked at her one day and I said, you don't look, why don't you look happy? You don't look happy. And she said, well, let me just say this before I say what she said. When I looked at her and I asked the question, why aren't you happy? She wasn't happy with the question while I was asking her why she wasn't happy, you know? I said, why aren't you happy? And she said, well, think about it. You have no idea what it's like to have somebody that you constantly have to clean up after. You always have to feed them, and they feel like they're at your beck and call all the time, and now we have a baby. (laughs) I get it. It's exhausting. As a parent, you've, you've always got this burden that you carry, and it's hard. A friend of a friend of mine, actually was talking about how, I think it was actually him who, who Googled a phrase, the most disappointed parent in the world. And, and again, that sounds like kind of harsh, right? But the thing that's interesting is this, the most disappointed parent in the world was what was Googled, and what was really interesting is what came up. What actually came up when this gentleman Googled this was a letter written by a guy in Great Britain, in England. And the letter was about his disappointment in his children. It was a letter to his disappointed children, to the children who had disappointed him. So he wrote them a letter. And the letter went viral. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to read it to you. Because it's so raw and it's so real. Look at the screen behind me and listen to me as I read what he wrote. Dear children, there were three of them. It is obvious that none of you has the faintest notion of the bitter disappointment each of you has in your own way dished out to us. (laughs) Oh boy, dude. We are constantly regaled with chapter and verse of the happy, successful lives of the families of our friends and relatives and being asked of news of our own children and grandchildren. I wonder if you realize how we feel. I can now tell you for that, that I, for one, and I sense your mom, that's because he's British, I sense your mother feels the same. We've had enough of being forced to live through the never-ending bad dream of our children's underachievement. I want to hear nothing else from you 
until, if you feel inclined, you have a success or an achievement or a realistic plan. I am bitterly disappointed. Dad. Now, here's the thing. That makes some of you feel better about your own life, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, it does. And at the very same time that some of you feel better about your life, some of you, those words cut like a knife because that's the life that you're living. You're living a life of disappointment. So here's the question. Where do you go when you're disappointed? In life, where do you go when you're disappointed? Because here's the thing. You and I live in a world where hearts are broken all the time. We're always disappointed. We're disappointed with relationships. We're disappointed with people. We're disappointed with life. So where do you go when you're disappointed? Because all of us experience disappointment. And knowing that all of us experience disappointment, let me just tell you this morning, I'm glad you're here. Because today, that's what I'm going to tell you. That's what I'm going to help you see. I'm going to help you understand where you need to go when you're disappointed. Because, see, the Bible is a story of a parent who was disappointed. I mean, that's what the Bible is. It's the story of a parent who has every good reason to be disappointed in his children. I mean, what we read just a moment ago is a letter from a real dad who was really kind of crude for superficial reasons. And he responds to the disappointment in what I would say is a very hurtful way in the life of his children. But the Bible is a story of God, the Creator, Heavenly Father. And yet He has profound reasons to be disappointed in His children. But it's the way that He responds to the disappointment. Because He responds in a way that is beyond what I can comprehend. And here's what I believe. If you'll listen to me this morning, and if you'll let it, what we're going to look at today can be the foundation out of which you can love people in your disappointing world. Because all of us experience disappointment. Husbands with wives, wives with husbands, parents with children with jobs, with relationships. These are the words of God in the Bible. Old Testament, Hosea. And God is talking about his relationship with us, the human race. His relationship to his people. And he uses this really interesting picture of a parent and a child and disappointment. Hosea chapter 11, it'll be on the screen. You can follow me in your Bible if you want to. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I mean, all of us as parents know that. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And again, we might, we might remember, we might just kind of highlight this, that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to lead them out. But look at what Hosea says. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. That's us. 
this right here, this, this is us. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Now, we're going to stop right there. Look at that. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And the interesting thing about that is Ephraim, you know how parents have little nicknames, terms of endearment for their children and their grandchildren? Well, Ephraim, that's God's nickname, if you will, for his children, for Israel. Look at what it says. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them? In, in other words, what Hosea is saying, what God is saying is, will, will they not experience judgment now? Are they not going to experience judgment? Is that not going to be the cost of what they're going to experience because they're disobeying me, they're rejecting me? Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? And because they refuse to repent, a sword will flash in their cities. Now, here's the thing. When, when it says a sword will flash in their cities, it really, I want you to think about where we are right now. Think about the things that are going on in, in the cities of our nation right now. When it says a sword will flash in their cities, it means that their cities are going to become places of violence because they disobey me. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. Now, here's what I want you to understand that you're seeing. This is amazing insight into the very heart of God. This is insight into the very heart of the God of the universe. He is the most disappointed parent that has ever existed. But Hosea wants you and I to understand this, this is God's heart towards us. When I called my people, when I called Israel, when I called my child, they were nothing special. They're just a bunch of raggedy slaves. But even though they were those ragged slaves, I loved them. And that's God's heart towards me. That's God's heart toward you. I mean, what did God say? I taught them to walk. I'd pick them up and I'd hold them in my arms. I would cuddle Israel. I'd cuddle Ephraim the, the way that a parent cuddles their child. I'd bend down and I'd feed them. But they didn't know. How could they know? I mean, how could they know it was me? See, here's the thing. Every time you wake up in the morning and there's somebody there to love you, Every morning you get up and your body is working. When you get sleep at night and you get up in the morning and you have food to eat, how can you know? How can you know that that's God? My children don't, God says. 
They run after other gods. Maybe called Baal. Maybe called excess or success or ego or self or money or sex or pleasure. My kid has gone bad. See, God says, I, th I, I thought our relationship, my relationship with my child was going to be so different. I thought my child was going to go to school and get straight A's. I thought they were going to get into sports and play varsity. I thought they were going to get into Vanderbilt. God says, you know what? I thought I'd have a bumper sticker I could put on my car that talks about my kids. But it doesn't look like that. God is just pouring out the disappointment of a parent who is heartbroken over their child. And let me, let me, let me just stop here. If I'm a parent, why would I think I'm above disappointment? Listen to me, parents. If you're a parent, why do you think you would be above being disappointed in your children when we look at God and God is disappointed in his children. And see, we read this extraordinary letter and we wonder, how is God going to respond? How is God, what, is, what is it that God is going to say to his children? Is he going to be like the guy who wrote the letter, the most disappointed parent in the world? I don't want to hear from you until you have something good. I want to hear from you. Until you have some achievement? No. God goes on. This, this is the turning point. This is kind of what the whole passage hinges on. Look at what it says. But how can I give up on you, Ephraim? I mean, think about the heart of every parent. We all know that. I mean, I've got three kids. I mean, I know. How can I give up on them? How can I turn you loose, Israel? How can I leave you to be ruined? I can't bear to even think such thoughts. And again, listen, this is God talking. And look at what he says. He says, my insides turn, churn in protest. And so I'm not going to act on my anger. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. And why? Is he not going to destroy them because he thinks they're going to get better? Is he, they're going to do better? They're going to achieve something? Is he not going to destroy them because they're so well behaved? No, not at all. Look at, look at this. It's because I'm God and not human. I'm the Holy One and I'm here in your very midst. The people will end up following God. It's an amazing passage because, listen, it's a struggle. It's a, it's a picture of a struggle. And it's not, between, it's, not, it's not this struggle between God and this outside force. It's not actually a struggle that happens between God and his children. But the struggle that we see in the passage we just read is actually a struggle that's going on inside of God because God said, my insides churn. Because he knows the pain of rejection. And see, in our world, it goes like this. You reject me, I'll reject you. 
But God says, I can't do that. This I cannot do. Because I'm God. I can't reject you because I'm the Holy One of Israel. Now think about that holy, holy. The Holy One of Israel. See, you, you, you think about the word holy in the culture today. And that word has lost its meaning. I mean, you, you hear the word holy in our culture and most people don't understand it. They see holy as a, as a, as a church word. They see holy as a, a word that makes God seem like he's distant, like he's remote or strict or severe. They see the word holy as it, it might keep him from just being who he is, and that's a loving God. And actually, in the passage that we just read, I'm going to paraphrase this. It, it actually says, holiness is not an obstacle to my love, but holiness is the foundation of my love. It's because I'm holy. But see, in our world, it works this way. You please me, I'll please you. You make me feel good about who I am, I'll give you good stuff. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. It's precisely the fact that God is good. That his goodness is unstoppable. That that is the thing that does not allow him to react the way that we would react. He says, I can't stop loving you. I can't. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you slept with last night, what you did last week. It doesn't matter. I can't stop loving you because I promised. See, it's not a feeling. It's not this warm glow that rises up in your stomach. It's not something that makes me feel good about myself. But love is a promise. And the promise that God makes is that I will. I will will your good. I will work for your good. I'm going to work for your good and devote myself to your good. It doesn't matter how you treat me. What did he say? For I'm God. I'm God and not man. I'm the Holy One among you. So love, listen, 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 listen. Love is a promise. And sometimes that promise, it might be wonderful. Sometimes it might be comforting. But sometimes love can be painful. And sometimes love can be challenging. But God promised. God promised to love. See, here's the thing. We promise to love, but we can't keep that promise on our own. We promise to love, but we can't keep that promise on our own. Because when it comes to love, there's this wonder around it. There's this pain around it. I, I want to read something from a book this morning. 
And this book is really about the promise of love between a mother and a child. And it might sound familiar to some of you. It's called Love You Forever. And I'm going to read the whole book to you. Can I, just, can I rephrase that? I'm going to try to read the whole book to you. And let me say this. If you need Kleenex, they're on the front row, okay? <laughs> A mother held her new baby and very slow, slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she's, she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The baby grew and he grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old. And he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator. He took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. That little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. He never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at night time, when he was asleep, that mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends, wore strange clothes, and listened to strange music. Sometimes his mother felt like she was in the zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep. She picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living my baby, you'll be. That teenager grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown-up man. He left home and he got a house across the town. But sometime on dark nights, the mother got into her car and she drove across town. If all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window, crawled across the floor. Now, it's getting a little creepy, okay? So anyway, I admit. 
She crawled across the floor. My parents are kind of creepy sometimes. You know what I'm saying? That's just the way it is. She crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of the bed. If this great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. And one day, she called up her son. And she said, you better come see me. Because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. And when he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. And she sang, I love you forever. I like you for always. But she couldn't finish the song. Because she was too old and sick. And the son went to his mother, and he picked her up, and he rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living my mommy, you'll be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. And he picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And the song goes on. Generations come and generations have gone. People are born and people die. But the song continues. And you know what? I don't know. It might sound kind of sentimental to you. But the thing that we need to understand is that there's a story behind the story. Because the book was written by a guy named Robert Munch. And his life is not a hallmark kind of life. See, when Robert was very young, he was diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. And he writes about when he was in the fifth grade that he was so depressed that I don't want to live. In the fifth grade, he felt like, you know what, I, I, I don't even want to live anymore. And he's just in the fifth grade. Then he's diagnosed with this 
obsessive-compulsive disorder. And some of you know what that's like. Then maybe to medicate himself, he ended up becoming an alcoholic. So he joined AA. When he was a young man, he studied seven years to become a Jesuit priest. But given all that he had experienced in his life, he found himself filled with doubts and darkness. So he ended up not doing that. But he got married. And you know what happened? His wife got pregnant. She gave birth to a little baby, and, and, and that baby was stillborn. Then she got pregnant again and gave birth to another little baby, and that second baby was also stillborn. So when she didn't get pregnant anymore, and when he didn't get to hold or see those little babies, when Robert didn't get to be a dad like he wanted to be, because he was a real good writer of children's books, that little song came into his head. I'll love you forever. That's where the song came. It came from those two children that he would never get to raise. And then one day he had a thought, and the thought was this. I can write a book. I can write a story that's better than life. And in this story, love could be stronger than death. Because, see, it's a funny thing when you're a parent. You, you get this idea that as a parent... If you could just love your kids enough, if you could just tell them that you love them enough, if, if there's some way that you as a parent could just fill up their little tanks with love, then they'd never be anxious, they'd never be afraid, and instead they'd grow up and be strong and confident and successful and make great choices and lead great lives and raise great families. But then you can't. Because like the book, you come to the top of the stairs. And there's some type of conflict. There's estrangement. There's loss. There's betrayal. There's disappointment. So what do you do when you stand at the top of the stairs? And your love is not enough anymore. Because you feel like you failed. Well, let me tell you, that's, that's why we're here this morning. Because this is a place where disappointed, broken-hearted people come to the disappointed, broken-hearted God who looks at us and in spite of all our defects says, you know what, I'll love you forever. I want to give you three thoughts in the moments that remain. How you bring a disappointed heart to God. 
Because that's who we are. We're disappointed, broken-hearted people who are just trying to love each other. And to be able to do that, we need a love of another kind. Because we can't do it ourselves. Here, here's the first thing I want to share with you. Talk to God about your disappointed heart. See, here's the thing. When you, when you hold disappointment in... It's interesting because the thing that you hold in your heart, it just has a way of getting out. It has a way of leaking out. And when you try to hold it in, it doesn't work so well. And sometimes that, that, that a lot of people think that, you know, church is a place that we go and church is a place that we're supposed to manage what we look like on the outside. But the church is the place where imperfect people gather. Because I can tell you, apart from God, my life is a train wreck. Apart from God, my life is a mess. I know that. And I know that I'm one bad choice away from just having a train wreck. So this is the place I come. And this is the place where we bring our disappointed hearts. So let me tell you, if you're a mother this morning, a parent, an individual, and you have a disappointed heart this morning for something that's happened, bring it to God. Grieve it. Talk to God about it. Cry over it. And here's the thing. Then dry your tears. And embrace this life, embrace this day, embrace these people. Because listen to me, Crossroads, this is the only life that you're ever going to get. These are the only people that you're ever going to be able to love. So bring your disappointment to God. Here's the second thing. Don't base the well-being of your heart on the outcome of somebody else's life. Don't base the well-being of your heart on the outcome of someone else's life, not even someone you love. Parents, listen to me. Not even your child. And I'm going to camp out here for just a minute because this is so important. See, there's an old saying that I remember somebody saying back when I was younger, starting out in parenting. And it kind of talks about the way a mother's heart works. And that saying went like this. A mother can be no happier than her least favorite child, her least happy child. Which may or may not be her favorite. But look at the saying. A mother can be no happy. I mean, you, you, many of you have bought into that. And I just want to tell you this morning, while that may sound tender, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And some of you are like, what? I can't even believe he's saying that. Well, just track with me a minute. Because I'll tell you, on the chart of sayings in human history, that's at the top. It's the worst. Because think about it. That's not the way God runs the universe. 
God doesn't run the universe that way, and thank God he doesn't. I mean, let me, let, me, let me paint a picture here. What if God said, well, as long as there's one human being that's running down the wrong path, as long as there's one prodigal son, one prodigal daughter out there making stupid decisions, wrong choices, doing bad things, living in misery, as long as that's happening down there on the earth, I'm just going to be miserable too. What if God did that? What if God said, because Randy Cook is, is a... Is a prodigal son doing bad things, making bad decisions because he's miserable, I'm going to be miserable. What if God ran the world that way? Thank God he doesn't do that. Who wants to be in the world with a miserable God? Amen? Nobody does. I was talking to a mom not long ago that, and she has a daughter. It's a really hard relationship right now. It's one of those like, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at wit's end. I don't know what to do. And I'm not going to give you the real names, but I'm, let's just leave it. Uh, the mom's name is Linda. Let's just say Linda. She has a mother-in-law named Betty. Betty gives a lot of good advice. Because Betty raised three children, and all three of her children were perfect. They were so perfect that Betty didn't have to use all of her wisdom. So Betty has extra wisdom to give out to other people. She has extra wisdom. So she's giving it to Linda, her daughter-in-law. Here, use some of my extra wisdom. And Linda was praying and saying, you know, God, I don't even know why you gave me this child. I don't know why you gave me this daughter. You probably should have given her to Betty. Because Betty would do better. Betty would be a better mom. Betty has all that wisdom. Betty would know what to do. And it's like Linda heard God say, Whoa, whoa, wait. I didn't want Betty to be her mom. I chose you to be her mom. I gave you what this little child needs. You are this child's mom because I want you to be this child's mom. See, here's the thing. You are who you are. And you are where you are because God made you. God chose you. God loves you. God will work in you. God will work through you. And as a parent, as a mother, God will use you. Your well-being and your connection to God in your life, it does not, listen to me, Crossroads, it does not rest on the outcome of your child's life. And people get really confused about this. I was reading in a book the other day where it, it talks about what we've done to the word parent. We've taken the, the word parent and we've done this really strange thing with it. We've taken a wonderful word, which is a wonderful noun, and we have made it and turned it into a verb. We talk about parenting. Well, how well am I doing it? How well am I parenting? How well are you parenting? Are you parenting well enough? Are you parenting badly? 
So we put this huge outcome on our kids. Parent is a good noun, but it is a terrible verb. Because God does not do that. God never looks at his own existence and base his existence on how you and I are turning out. Think about that. He doesn't base his existence in the heavens based on how you and I are responding to life. Well, my kids are behaving badly. I guess I didn't got them enough, you know what I mean? If I'd have guided my kids a little bit better, they'd probably do a little bit better. Maybe I was too lenient. Maybe I was too strict. Maybe they'd have done better with another God like Baal or, or, or Molech or Zeus or Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift or somebody like that. But God doesn't do that. And thank God he doesn't. Because see, when it comes to my children... I can love them. And will I mess them up? Yes, I will. Absolutely. I will mess my children up. You know why? Because I'm a sinner. So is there some kind of formula where I can do the right thing, say the right thing all the time, that will guarantee my kids will grow up wise and strong and confident and lead to living great lives? No, there's no formula. There's wisdom and there's folly. There's no guarantee. And there's no formula. If I have a child that's miserable, is it going to help for me to be miserable with them? Absolutely not. Because listen, this is so misunderstood. And it's so misunderstood that I wanted you to really grasp this. And the way I think I can get you to grasp this is to give you a sentence, a very simple sentence. I'm going to put it on the screen. And here's what that sentence says. Love does not mean putting my personal well-being in the hands of my least emotionally healthy relative. Amen? I mean, some of you, that's the reason why you came today. It's that sentence. Love does not mean putting your well-being in the hands of somebody who is emotionally not where they need to be. So let's all say it to back. We'll go, go back there, Jay. Let's all say that together real slowly. Love does not mean putting my personal well-being in the hands of my least emotionally healthy relative. And listen to me this morning. I don't mean to be callous. And empathy is a good thing. But I'll tell you a little secret. You'll be a better mother. A better, a better dad, a better brother, a better sister, a better grandmother, a better child, a better co-worker. If you're happy in your life with God. That's all you need to worry about. Basically, if you're happy in your life with God. Live your life in the joy of the Lord. Because when you do that, you actually have more to give away. Just crawling into a miserable space with a miserable person 
It's not a gift to them, and it's not a gift to you. See, there's this really interesting statement in the Bible. A lot of you know King David. I mean, he had, he, his life was a train wreck. He had a train wreck of a family life. He was a really bad husband in a lot of ways. He was a really bad dad in a lot of ways. But one time when he was at his lowest and everybody had deserted him and he had no other place to turn, there's this great statement in Scripture that I want you to see. And the Scripture says this, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. David encouraged himself, even though everything was going bad, even though he was totally disappointed, he encouraged himself in the Lord. And see, here's the thing. It's painful to know that I'm a sinner. It's painful to know that I'm selfish, I am inadequate. To know that my ego gets in the way and it hurts my kids. So I don't think there's any other area in my life where I need more grace than in the area of parenting. So I go to God. And I remember that God loves me. I don't know why. But he's holy. And he forgives me. And he's with me. And he'll help me. So that's where we need to live. Live in that. Don't live in the misery of somebody else's life who's hard. Live in God. Here's the third thing. Don't let disappointment somewhere blind you to the good elsewhere. Now look at that. Don't let disappointment somewhere blind you to the good elsewhere because, see, everybody's going to disappoint you. In every person, there's going to be something that's going to disappoint you. And here's the danger. The danger is that I can start looking at you, and when I look at you, all I can see is the things that disappoint me. I look at the things that disappoint me, and then I start to think, well, that's all there is to you. You're just one big disappointment. And I want you to hear me this morning. That can happen in your family. It can also happen at work. It can happen at school. But wherever that happens, relationships start to go south. Because I just see you as a disappointment. I see you as the one who is, who is inflicting pain on me. I look at you and all I can see is there's somebody who disagrees with me. And I think you're wrong. I look at your life and I tell you, here's where you're messing up. Here's the stuff I don't like about you. Here's the character defects that I see in your life. Here's where you're failing. And once I start communicating that you're a disappointment to me, that's when the relationship starts to die. Nothing else can make up for that. You can eat meals, you can eat meals with gourmet food on fine china. 
It doesn't matter. You can live in the most expensive house, but if you live in that house in isolation, in coldness, in withdrawal, or resentment, or grudges, that house just becomes a nice decorated tomb. Because part of what love does is it seeks God. And it asks God for his help. God, help me to see other people the way that you see other people. God, help me to see people the way you see people and not just see in them the things that disappoint me. I think the Apostle Paul said it best when he said this. Love always looks for the best. It doesn't mean that you live in denial. It just means that you say, God, help me to see the best in other people. And let me, let me just tell you, Crossroads, it's, it's easy to do this. It's such an easy thing as you go to your family gatherings this afternoon and to look at the people in your life and say something positive. I just love your smile. I love your sense of humor. I love the way you take care of your family. I love your eyes. I love your creativity. I love how organized you are. You can do this. And not just do this, you can do this today. You can go into interactions that you have with people and look for the best. And let me tell you this morning, if you feel like you can't, if you just don't feel like you have love inside of you to give away, if you're at the top of the stairs, then just come to God. And you can do that right now. Because let me tell you this morning, He knows exactly what it's like to be a disappointed parent. He knows what it's like to be rejected by his own children. And that song came to him. I'll love you forever. I'll love you forever. I'm the Holy One. And I'm going to write a story where love is stronger than death. And he did. He wrote that story. And we read that story at the cross. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, we thank you for this very special time, this very special day. Where, God, we're able to assemble together, most importantly, to worship you. But, God, to remember those very important people in our lives, our mothers. Some still living here with us. Some already gone. We remember foster mothers, grandmothers, stepmothers spiritual mothers. There's there's just so many that we couldn't even name. But we remember what they mean to us this morning. Because many of them had that very 
spirit in their own lives that they'll love us forever. But that love pales in comparison to the love that you have through, for us through your son Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. It's the promise that you made. You couldn't turn your back on us because you promised that you would love us. It doesn't matter what we do. You can't not love us. God, on this very special day, help us to understand and to grasp that. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. That always look for the best in situations and in other people. Help us to see people the way that you see them, God. Because that's who you are. It's the very nature of who you are. And we want to reflect that nature in this world. As we ask this prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. 